In this episode of Don't At Me, join me and actress activist Laverne Cox. The first thing we do when we wake up, he's like, you should make a list of five things you're grateful for and five things you're manifesting. Mm. So for a couple of years, I had been writing down, I want to have a recurring role on a TV show. Um, was on my list for like a couple mm. of years. And so I, I remember starting out 2012 and that was on the list. And then like by September of that year, it happened. We delve into the struggle leading up to her historic role on Orange is the New Black, the story behind hashtag trans is beautiful, the documentary disclosure, and obviously so much more. It's Laverne. Stay tuned. So what's up, Culture Machines? Thank you for joining me for another episode of Don't At Me. I'm your host, Justin Simeon. We are back live via Zoom with some of you in the audience. We're going to be incorporating all of your questions with today's guest in real time. We are so thrilled to have with us the Emmy-nominated actress, producer, equal rights activist, Laverne Cox. Um, You're incredible. I was a fan of yours um, just through the TV screen. And have since been able to actually work with you both on um, season three of Dear White People and my upcoming movie, Bad Hair. And I have to say that one of the things that's so remarkable about you is that you, you work from such a serious place. You work from somewhere deep inside. You take your work very seriously, but you're also literally, you're a, you're a flame with legs. Like you are, you, you just light up a room you're always so joyful. And I think for a lot of people in our minds, you just kind of emerged from Venus's shell, like fully formed. Here I am, orange is the new black, I'm changing the whole world. But your story is kind of crazy and wild and a testament to hustle and believing in yourself. And you know, I'm always, I'm always making things about people trying to navigate spaces that weren't built with them in mind. And boy, do you know something about that. And you are thriving. So I I really want to talk and unpack um, your story. Like, what got you to Orange uh, is the New Black? Because for a lot of people, that's where it starts. But so much happened before then that I think would be really inspiring for people. Like, you need to ask me something specific because that's a long story. You know, it was just the intro, girl. I'm going to give you questions. <laughs> that was so sweet. Thank you. I just wanted you to know where we're going and why okay. we're going there because um, because I think it's uh, inspiring is not even the right word. Like inspiring mm-hmm. is so lame <laughs> for how you make me feel. Okay, so I'm always curious about this. When did you know that it was your destiny to be a performer? Uh, an act? Did you know it was being an actress? Like when did you know? I have always known. I, mm. I, when I was when I was five years old, I actually when I started walking, I started dancing. Wow. So I walked and danced, and I always had music in my head, and I danced around everywhere. At five years old, I was like, "Mom, I want to take dance classes," and she was like, "What?" At five. <laughs> At five years old, and so we, you know, I'm born. I was born in Mobile, Alabama, single mom, you know, 
poverty, all the stuff. Um, <laughs> um, poverty, black, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. <laughs> and so my dance classes, and so like, but then I kept asking, kept asking. And finally, when I was in third grade, my mother found a program called Culture in Black and White, which is an arts program for low-income kids in mm. Mobile, Alabama at the time, back in the 80s. Um, and it would have been circa 1980, um, yes. um, actually. And um, yeah, I started studying dance when I was in third grade, but I always felt like an actor who danced. There were always character, there was always character attached to movement and characters attached to the music. And so it always felt like character driven. So I always knew I would act, um, but I thought, you know, you're young, you have to be young to dance. And so I would dance first and then I would transition to acting. And then I um, started, so I went to the Alabama School of Fine Arts. I was a dance major there in Birmingham, okay. Alabama. Got a scholarship there. And, and then that was, and that was a boarding school, no? Correct, yes. I went to a boarding school. Poor girl from Mobile, Alabama in boarding school. It's crazy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hello, scholarship. Hello. Thank you, scholarship. Hi. Uh, <laughs> Answer. <laughs> Hi, scholarship. How are you? Um, so, yeah, I went to the Alabama School of Fine Arts, and then I graduated and then um, went to Indiana University for two years. I was a dance major there. Did, um, did some musicals there. I did some musicals in high school, too. Did some musicals where I acted a little bit, but, but also sang. And then I, then I transferred to Marymount Manhattan College, and I did my first non-musical play my first semester at Marymount. And then I started studying acting, and then I sort of acted and sang, and, you know, and I was in New York, and I... Acted a fool in the clubs at night and just... I can't imagine that at all. (laughs) Well, so, because I'm so curious about this, you know, I remember seeing, like, Do the Right Thing for the first time and realizing, oh, oh, you can make art films and be Black at the same time. Mm. Who are you chasing at this time? Like, um, especially in school, like, who, who did you see in the world that made you feel like you could do it? got inspiration from a lot of different places. So when I think about my, my childhood in Alabama and what sort of made me want to dance was, was fame, was the TV show Fame. Oh, and Debbie, yes. Allen, Debbie Allen, Jean Anthony Ray, um, Irene Cara in the movie. I mean, fame is like, was like my whole life. <laughs> Leroy, come on, Leroy. Leroy, but then like Janet Jackson later on, it's Coco. Yes. Mia Law, um, um, what was her name? The, um, I forgot her name, girl. There were so many different cast members. Throughout we'll edit it out. It'll be great. Yeah, no, it's all good. <laughs> we have um, an ADR session later, so I'll, so, I'll look it up and we'll so edit it like between, between Fame and, like, Debbie Allen and Jean Anthony Ray and then Darcel on Solid Gold. <laughs> if anyone yes. remembers Solid Gold, I wanted to be, I wanted to be Darcel. I thought I was Darcel. I was mm. um, <laughs> In my head. And I love, and I love Boy George and I love Madonna. So yes. I was, and then, yeah. It was all of that. And then I saw a picture of Iman when I, in um, Jet, on Jet, cover Jet magazine. So I like pulled from a lot of different places. I didn't see anyone really like me. Like, yes. Like that didn't, that didn't exist. So I did what Jose Munoz calls disidentification. I disidentified okay. with, with characters that were not culturally coded, you know, for me to identify with. So I, there was a lot of disidentification with different things I saw on television. Yeah, and I, and I, I want to get into that too, but in, in 2007, I didn't actually know this actually, you were inspired by somebody who was a little bit like you uh, in Candace Kane, right? Yeah, yeah. Tell, tell us about that. Major moment. So like, you know, I um, moved to New York in 1993, just transitioned in 1998, and, was, and then started acting, started studying very seriously. 
um, did some movies and was training for years and not getting any traction, mm. um, doing like off-Broadway theater and some independent films, student films, anything to just get a reel, an acting reel, anything to just work. And um, in 2007, Candace Kane, who I knew from the um, club scene in New York City, um, booked a role on a show called Dirty Sexy Money, and she became yes. an openly transgender um, actor to have a recurring role in a primetime TV show. And I was like, oh my God, it's possible. Oh my God, this is the moment. And it mm. literally it completely changed my life. I, um, I created postcards. I'd done a movie years ago where um, the, uh, with this actor, this guy who was uh, this French actor said that he uh, made postcards. He was French and he kept his French, uh, his, uh, French accent. And he basically, he had these postcards that said, your French connection. He was the answer to all your French, you know, speaking, acting needs. Right? <laughs> he sent the postcard out to agents and casting directors like every six months to remind them that he was there and to work. And so I kept that in the back of my mind. And so like, that was 2002. So 2007, I was like, okay, it's time. So I made postcards is that Laverne Cox is the answer to all your transgender acting needs. And I sent it to 500 agents and casting directors. How many? Say again, how many? 500. Oh my God. You know, I run into so many people who are like, what do I do? And I'm like, I don't know. But now I know what to tell them. This is 2007. I don't know if this would work anymore. It was like, you know, before... I don't know, it was 2007. So, um, and there was a thing called the Ross Reports, right? So I got yes. Ross Reports and I like went and just made um, um, like labels, like, and I just sent 500, you know, postcards out and I got four meetings. And one of the, one of the meetings was with Paul Halepo, who is my manager to this day. Wow. And, um, the next year I booked my first Law and Order and I booked my first HBO show and my second Law and Order. And then I did a reality show called I Want to Work for Diddy. So all of that happened because I, well, I believed it was possible. So I, I put myself out there because Candace Kane had done it. And I put myself out there. And then the energy was just, just changing. People were like, when well, there's a trans person on television, maybe they can have trans people do other things. And then I um, did, I want to work for Diddy and became the first like trans person on a reality competition show in 2008. Wow. Like, literally a few weeks before Isis King was on America's Next Top Model. Um, so yeah, we kind of, we, simultaneously, we did that together um, in a way. I think that's phenomenal, but I just want to unpack that a little bit more. So really, you know, the moment of seeing somebody who is trans and out there doing exactly what you wanted to do, why was that so transformative? Like, what, what was the before and after of that moment? So, so the before was me transitioning in 1998 with a dance degree and wanting to act and being like, okay, there's no trans actors. Like you need to go do something else. So I went to fashion school. I went to FIT for three semesters and I was gonna study fashion merchandising. I learned a lot, but I was like, I don't really wanna do this. Um, booked another movie. I was booking movies here and there. And then, uh, um, and then a, a girl I worked with at coffee shop, Candace Edmondson, said that there's a great studio and a great teacher you should go and check out. Um, and the one was named Susan Batson. And so I went to her studio and then fell in love with the process. And that's when I really started taking acting very seriously. And worked at her studio for a while. And then I ended up getting a scholarship. And then I was like mopping floors and cleaning toilets so I can get acting classes for free. And got really serious about the work. And so I just loved acting and I was yeah. in work and I was just I just desperate to act and so this we're talking 1998 and 1999 2000 and just work doing whatever I can and it not really happening right working you know training training very seriously for a long time and then 
but there were no, then the, the trans things would come along here and there. I remember Flawless, that movie with um, Robert De Niro, and they had a bunch of drag queens to do that. And I didn't have an agent, so I couldn't even get an audition for that. And little things, Law and Orders, where, you know, where the, they were, a trans person would be murdered in the first, you know, sure. 30 seconds, those things. And I didn't have an agent, so I couldn't even get auditions for those things. So little things yeah. would come up. So there weren't like, they just weren't trans people on television, like openly yeah. people. But I loved acting. And so I was like, I need to do, I just need to do this. And then when Candace was on television, I was like, oh my God, it, it is possible. And so I think up until that point, I just was going with the love. I was going with like, I love doing this and I have to figure out a way to make it happen. And then when Can- Candace's moment was like, oh, this is actually possible. Let me go. And then I think it showed the world too that like, Oh, okay, like a people, you know, Candace made a splash and she, there was a lot of press. And so people were aware that a trans person was on television. So it kind of made space, I think, for more trans people as well. So I think it's a, it's a lot of things. So it was like, this is years of, um, you know, studying and preparation by the time yeah. this, you know. It's an act of will. Yeah, and, but it's also love. It's will and it's also, it's love. And people always ask me, like, how do you... I, cause there was no real reason. I mean, I would just, there's no real reason for to keep going, right? There's no reason. There was literally not a trans person <laughs> on television, like outside right. of Joy Springer or some horrible, you know, daytime talk show. So, but it was the love and the passion for the work that really kept me going. And like, not really a, belie- a belief in that and the belief in, in the transformative power of the work of being an artist. Right. That's yeah. what kept me going. So Will, uh, it, it's, it's more love and passion. Were there, did you have this experience where there were people who loved you very much in your life, but just really felt that it would probably be the best thing for you to stop trying so hard? <laughs> did, you have, did you have that conversation with anybody or were there, did you have any doubters in your life that you had to sort of navigate? Probably. I mean, I think, yeah, I would say so. I mean, I think like when you're an actor, you just deal with so much rejection anyway. So it's sure. just like, it's not like I need a person in my life telling me I can. Like I just, you know. I just well, none of us need it, honey. <laughs> right? We could do it all for ourselves. So I can't say that I, I did until, until, uh, until 2012. I was, I was working at Lucky Chang's and I turned 40. Um, and then a, a queen who used to work at Chang's, um, she came back and she had like, you know, she actually had, lived as a trans woman and detransition and that was like a whole thing and she was in school um to do like anesthesiologist and she wanted to be an anesthesiologist I mean, she's like girl you need to go back to school you need to get like a real job i was like i'm an actor i'm an artist you know i had this survival job and i'm like i'm an artist and she's like go you need a real job and then i think like the 40 thing hit me and i was just like i'm 40 years old mm. rent arrears because that because in february of that year my birthday's in may um in february of 2012 i got my second eviction notice in two years so i was like yeah. on a plan to avoid being evicted from my apartment and i was 40 and i had like student loan debt and credit card debt. i was like you know it was it was it was messy and i was just like this is not how i envisioned my life sure <laughs> so i should be I wanted to be doing something else by the time I was 40. So I was like, okay, it's time to go back to school. So that's when I, that was the only time I really thought about giving up. Honestly. And that was the year you got Orange. And that was the year I booked Orange. So, uh, so you felt this way in February. When did you get Orange in that year? I, I auditioned probably late August and booked it late August, early September, and then went to work in September and... And what was that process like? Like, how did you find out about it? Was it just another call? Like, what was that? 
You know, it's funny because I was seriously like going to go to grad school. So I was studying, I got GRE, study materials, and I was like studying for the GRE. I was looking into different graduate programs. And Paul was like, there's a web series um, that's sitting in a women's prison with a part for you. And I was just kind of like, oh. I was mm. kind of like, face of being kind of over. I was like, okay, another audition and I'm not going to Yes. Uh, <laughs> wow. And I was just like, okay, I was like, I'll go. And I was just, I just, I love the work. And I was like, well, it sounds interesting. Send it to me. And so he sent me the material and it was like, the pilot script was so good. The pilot yeah. script was just like, just, it jumped off the page. It was so thrilling to read. And so I did a scene from the pilot and then I did um, a scene from the third episode. Um, and so I just prepped the, um, prepped it by myself actually and went in with like no makeup and like a, um, bandana or something on my head and just did the audition, you know, got some adjustments. I auditioned for um, Jen a few times before Jen Houston, the casting hmm. director. And I booked it from that one audition and I was wow. like walking in the East Village and Paul gives me a call and I was like, you booked it and I just kind of screamed. We're not in prison anymore. We can do whatever we want. Be whatever we want. Yeah, but you can't pretend that prison just didn't happen. No. But I'm not going to spend the rest of my life looking back on it either. I did my time. I'm looking forward now. And you and your hair, she's the same. So, which one of these Beckys do you want to be? And the interesting thing about it, that is I had been studying with this um, teacher, Brad Calcaterra, in New York. And he's, he encourages all, his, all of his students, the first thing we do when we wake up, he's like, you should make a list of five things you're grateful for and five things you're manifesting. Mm. So for a couple of years, I had been writing down, I want to have a recurring role on a TV show, um, was on my list for like a couple mm. of years. And so I, I remember starting out 2012, and that was on the list. And then like by September of that year, it happened. And wow. then all of a sudden, all of these things on the list started happening. Um, which is kind of amazing. What I, what I love about this story too is it, it, there's a classic dark night of the soul. Like, you know, when for writers, that is the moment in the script just before the hero vanquishes the villain or gets the boy or the girl or whoever they, whatever they're trying to do. And shit looks grim. <laughs> the flaws that they have been trying to overcome the whole time yeah. have just come at them at once. There's really no point in continuing. I find it so fascinating that so many people mm. who have been struggling have that moment right before they get to the other side. Um, wh what do you think about that? Is that coincidence or is that just part of the journey? I think it's part of the journey. And I think it's, and I, when I think about, it's part of God's plan. I mean, I really believe, and I know now like, what is it, eight years after um, I booked Orange, that, like, this is, this is, like, God's plan, that I had to go through 40 years of everything I went through to book this show, and not only book this show, but then be called upon to um, help change a conversation and create mm. a space that didn't exist before. And I know that I couldn't have done that when I was, even probably two years earlier. <clears throat> I wasn't emotionally prepared for it, that I wasn't... Um, psychologically and spiritually prepared for it. So I know now that this is all part of a larger plan and that, and that a lot of it was about surviving. It's like amazing that I'm a black trans woman and I made it to 40, you know what I mean? Like that, we don't always survive. So like, whew. it's gonna be emotional. I know, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do it. No, 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 it's fine. Friday. Emotions are, no emotions are human. Um, you know, it's just, you know, it's an emotional thing being in quarantine. I don't have a cat or- Oh. Whatever. 
So I have to look at all by myself. Are you an introvert or an extrovert, Laverne? I am an introvert, believe me. Really? Yeah. I believe it, but I also don't believe it. <laughs> I, I get it. I totally I get it. I need lots and lots of time alone. And when I am, like, sort of, ha- I can have moments of being extroverted. I'm an actor. But then I need lots of recovery time afterwards. I need lots yes. of time to sort of recuperate and to sort of gather myself after I've been extroverted in life. And I live an extroverted life, you know. Yeah. Like, life is, like, out there. So I need a lot of time to kind of um, recuperate. Afterwards. Well, I can't wait to give you a hug in person. <laughs> Okay, so we've arrived at Orange is the New Black. Mm-hmm. Um, you said that you weren't ready for it just two years before. What weren't you ready for? Was it the I acting think, side of it or was it being so many firsts? I think the coming? acting I was ready for. <laughs> yes. It yeah. seemed like you were ready for the acting. The acting I was ready for, but the famous part, and the, the, not just the famous part, but the responsibility that came with it. Yeah. Um, there, is, there was a tremendous amount of responsibility of being probably the first transgender person that a lot of people that sort of had contact with in their living rooms, right? And on magazine covers and, and trans people being on magazine covers. Like I yes. didn't, I don't actually remember seeing that um, <laughs> before I was saw myself on the covers of magazines. So all of that part of it, the responsibility piece and representing a community and not community and not wanting to screw it up. Um, being sort of tasked to speak for an entire community when that's impossible, right? Yes. That, that, that my story is just one story, all of that. And then also that the, um, the difficulty of re, of the, and the necessity of needing to change the conversation. That mm-hmm. what had been happening in the media for around conversations with and about trans people was really exploitative, was really objectifying, um, was really reductive, and that conversation needed to be changed. And um, Seven, you know, seven years later, I can say we've changed the conversation. Which and how? And how was it reductive? I mean, I think we all kind of think we know, but like, I think if you don't mind, take us back to the the dark ages. I think a really good example of this is just well, disclosure. The one of the um, films I had at Sundance, yes, which we will talk um, about. Yes, um, looks at that history, right? But I think that I, I did a years ago. I did. Um, I put together a presentation of um, looking at the history of um, trans people on TV talk shows, going back to Christine Jorgensen, who is the sort of first world famous transgender woman who um, sort of became famous in like 1953, I think it was, when she had her um, gender confirmation surgery in Denmark um, and sort of made international news. Um, The conversation had from Christine Jorgensen on for about 60 years, the conversation was about genitalia and body Mm -hmm. parts. So mm-hmm. you see this sort of trajectory of, first of all, the before and after, like suddenly you need the um, interviewer or the journalist needing to set up this sort of um, dichotomy of someone who's very masculine presenting before they transition and then becoming very feminine presenting mm-hmm. after transition. Mm-hmm. And then all of the conversation being about how they did it surgically and hormonally. And so the entire focus was about body parts, was about surgery, um, and they, and some people would focus on like the humanity and what people always felt. But I, what I, what I came to understand watching 
hours and hours and hours and years and years and years of this footage is that even when there was a humanizing interview, the takeaway was always the surgery. People would be mm-hmm. like, oh my God, do you know what they do in that the surgery? Do you know when they, they do this to this body part? And, and that became the takeaway. And then in, so even those sort of humanizing moments were undermined by these sure. objectifying exploitative conversations about bodies and surgery. And so I, it became cognizant to me that we, the only way we would be able to have as trans people conversations that humanized us and we'd be able to have representation that, that um, explore our entire humanity is if we could move that conversation away from surgery and body parts mm-hmm. and keep it on the humanity of who trans people are. And um, that, the moment, that sort of famous, I would say iconic moment that um, Carmen Career and I had on Katie Couric's show in 2014 kind of um, was really a turning point with all of that. And Katie Couric, to her credit, I think she's done such a good job and a rare job of someone who publicly, you know, she asked some, again, like a lot of people, journalists had done some objectifying questions about Carmen's body parts, you know, and Carmen was like, I don't want to talk about that. And honestly, when Carmen said that, I had never seen a trans person push back mm. on the provision when someone said this. And I had been waiting and I always watched, you know, and I had done the research. And Carmen was really the first time I saw a, a trans person push back and say, I don't want to talk about that. I would love to talk about something else. And then I come out and Katie's like, well, Carmen doesn't want to talk about this. What do you think about it? And and to Katie's um, credit, that was a pre-tape. She could have edited all that out. She didn't. She had a teachable moment. She wanted though country to have a teachable moment um and then she brought me back on the show and said if we shouldn't be talking about this what should we be talking about Mm. Um, later she did a documentary called gender revolution where she continued the conversation she's become an amazing ally for our community and so often when people um are sort of called to task um for mistakes they might make with language or whatever they become defensive or they're canceled and they don't even get a chance to sort of learn and transform and i I'm not an advocate of cancel culture. I believe when we cancel human beings, we believe that they are irredeemable. And Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone's irredeemable. And we don't give people a chance to transform. Not anyone? Not anyone. Believe it or not, not anyone. Everyone's a human being. And like, I'm an artist. I'm an actor. I I have to find empathy for every character that I play. This is true. I am not... I'm not interested in canceling people. I'm not interested in dehumanizing people because so much of what we've done in this culture right now is we dehumanize people. And then when we dehumanize people, then we can discriminate against them. We can dismiss them and say they're like, we can put them in cages. We can do whatever we want. And so the process, I believe, one of the processes we need to be in now to bring our our world together is to rehumanize people. Even if we disagree with something, find ways to, um, to find some common ground, some love, some empathy. And that sounds crazy in this world right now. I remember watching um, watching um, Joanne Reeves, AM Joy, and Cory Booker was being interviewed um, during the presidential primary. He was talking about love, right? Cory yeah. Booker was talking about love. And Joanne Reeves was sort of kind of like, um, <laughs> she, it was just like, it was like the most ridiculous thing to her. Right. Like, him having this conversation about love and empathy. And I was just kind of like, wow, where are we? When like, we're sort of poo-pooing. Like, why do you think, why do you think we do, why do you think we're so addicted to that? I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think people on every side of the pol- political spectrum, every side of the woke spectrum, gay, straight, black, white, trans, yeah. we all love a good punching bag. Why is that, do you think, that we need to dehumanize people? Um, as part of our culture. 
think it's a, I mean, it's a lot of things. I think a lot of it's about, I mean, Brene Brown and um, Braving the Wilderness talks about it's really that it's really about belonging. That mm. we, as human beings, we crave connection and belonging. They're ir irreducible needs of human beings to have connection and belonging. And the sort of tribalism that happens when we like demonize this person who like has a different political view than us, then we get to be a part of this one group. But that's actually what Brene Brown contends is that that's not actually real belonging. Mm. The opposite of true belonging is trying to fit in. And so, so many of us are trying to fit in and, 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 and that f desire to fit in is a, is a um, vulnerability shield because we don't want to be vulnerable. Standing mm -hmm. alone is really scary. Um, I think a lot of us are scared and traumatized. I think obviously right now the coronavirus is like a collective trauma, but I would contend that like post Me Too, we were collectively, during Me Too and post Me Too, we're collectively sure. traumatized. We're collectively traumatizing Black people get murdered on camera over and over and over and over and over again. I don't even, how do you, how does one see that over and over again? So there's so much collective trauma that we don't know what to do with. And when, mm. we, when we're in trauma, what our nervous systems do, we go into fight, flight or freeze. And so what, so many of us are in survival mode. And so we're in fight, flight or freeze. We're in that Olympic part of our brains. And so we're, we're attacking, we're fleeing, we're dehumanizing. And instead of finding ways to get into our resilience zone, getting into the prefrontal cortex, get, finding ways to operate from a place that's not that survival impulse, right? When we're in survival, it gets very... It gets very basic, right? Yes. Survival mode. We got to. We're in the material world. We got to like take care of our bodies. We got to make sure we're safe. We're not. It's. It's not an elevated um, way of existing. And so right. I think it's about dealing with trauma, collective trauma, moving past that. And, and this, is a, this is a process that I mean, so, cause, I mean, me personally, I have used stress hormones to like being in this sort of pandemic. I've realized how much I rely on stress in my life. And I'm really trying to. Mm. A day at a time, very, very gently. And um, when we're in that place, we can't, there's no way we can like be in sure. love or anything. We're trying to just survive. Here's the deal. This could very easily become a three-hour conversation because I'm obsessed with you and everything you're saying makes me want to ask like five different questions, but I'm going to keep to our agenda. Okay, ma'am? You are you are making me want to ask about some shit that has nothing to do with your career. <laughs> that is, that's a great answer and it's brilliant. I wish more people uh, would hear that and, and, and give that a try, give that perspective a try. Brendan, I know we have some audience questions from the children. What yeah. do they want to know from Laverne? Uh, we have several questions, so I'm not gonna be able to get to all of them, but I'm gonna try to combine like two questions. Um, which is about kind of starting your career. So, um, one, or not really starting your career, but in terms of like what you focus on in your career. So one person asks, um, how do you discern, discern which roles you go for and which ones you pass on? And also um, someone asks, as a trans woman of color, what are the best ways to go about beginning a career in film? So kind of like what roles you choose and for advice for other people uh, following in your legacy? I mean, for, for pre-Orange, I said yes to almost everything. But there, <laughs> but there were some things I said no to. There was, and and um, I would get these scripts that would be so problematic. I remember getting this really problematic script, and it was an actor, an Asian-American guy, who had written this script with a trans character in it, and it was just filled with stereotypes and filled with these uh, unfortunate tropes. And I was like, you know, he... He has the best vision. He doesn't even realize this is problematic. Let me just help this child. And so I like wrote yeah. him and I was like, 
girl. <laughs> this is the best. Um, with love. Uh, <laughs> he, he revised it and it was still a mess. Oh, um, I was like, bless you. Um, so I, I didn't do that. You know, so they, when they were when things were just so egregious pre-orange. Now it's really about um, what haven't I done? And what's been so beautiful about a lot of the things I've turned down, I see other trans people booking, um, which is great now. And that just makes me super happy. So now it's about what doing something I haven't done before, getting to work with people that I'm really excited about working with. I, I was so thrilled to get to work with you, Justin. It really oh, thank it was you. The first time, you were the first time I kind of stalked a director and was like, I, I want to work with you. Like, let's do something. And like you said, yes. And I was like, oh my God. This works. It was a um, very mutual stalking. Um, <laughs> and I'll send you the Venmo for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, he did not pay me to say that. So yeah, so in terms of it's about, right now, it's about something that's challenging, something I haven't done before, and getting to work with someone, um, either an actor or a director, that, who I really respect, and telling a story that I really, really love. And in terms of being a Black trans woman breaking into the business, I would say this for anyone, I, um, no matter how you identify, I think you have to focus on, the, if you want to be an actor, I think you need to study. I think you need to know the craft inside and out and be committed to telling human stories, find a really good acting coach. I think you probably need to be in like LA, New York, maybe Atlanta, um, and then learn the business as much as you learn the craft because it's the business and find, um, and then just do everything you can. And sure. then, like you need experience, you need, um, like do your off-Broadway off shows, do your student films for free and just get experience and just, yes and. I can go on about that because I was like a, you know, a starving actor in New York for like 20, 20 years. <laughs> um, hey, not no more. No more. She Amen. eats now. Amen. She eats very frou-frou things. I, I, I kind of remember <laughs> that from shooting as well. There was like some kind of water you were trying to get me to try. <laughs> I wasn't trying to get you to try. I was just telling you about it. What was the water again? What was I supposed to do? <laughs> yes. What is, I forgot what that does. It's I mean, deterior. Uh, Lord help me. It's deuterium depleted water. Yes, that's right. That's right. I just remember leaving me like, damn, I got to step my water game way the fuck up. Google deuterium depleted water, Lord. <laughs> we'll have a we'll have an after show about that. Now, okay, so I'm. We're going to take a quick break. Not really. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with more from Goddess Laverne. And we're back. See how fun that was? Time travel. I'm gonna list some firsts. Cause your list of firsts is kind of crazy. <laughs> like it's nuts. But I'm gonna list, I'm, and, and I, I'm just gonna list them for the kids at home, they don't know. Okay, so you are the first openly trans woman nominated for an acting Emmy. First openly trans woman of color to have a leading role on a mainstream scripted TV show. First trans person ever on the cover of Time, Cosmopolitan, British Vogue. First trans person with a wax figure at uh, Madame Tussauds. First trans person to win a daytime Emmy. Uh, first trans person to play a trans series regular on broadcast TV. First black trans person to produce a star of their own TV show with Transform Me. Um, I know that being the first is a bit of a double-edged sword. <laughs> and you talked a little bit about two things that I think are very interesting and I would like to hear more from you about. Mm -hmm. One, the fact that you actually are naturally an in introvert. And two, that what you had to kind of get acclimated to is suddenly having to speak 
for, on behalf of a whole group of people, which is, of course, an impossible task. Um, but it seems to me from the outside looking in that it's one that you really, really took on. Um, and I just want to know, how do you do that? What is that process like for you? I do want to make one correction with the first. Um, technically, Amaya Scott is the first openly trans person to have um, to be a series regular on primetime TV. Got it. Uh, Star, you're fired. Star premiered like a month before Doubt. Okay. Amaya Scott giving you giving you the props there. Well, my assistant is out of work. Thank you, Laverne, for the. No, 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 no. But no, I, that's been actually reported on incorrectly by tons of people. So okay, you keep not. your job, Aaliyah. Um, Oh, gosh. But, okay, so uh, let me reframe it then to get back to the question. Um, When you have to step into an interview and speak on behalf of a bunch of people, but I think what most people want to do is just speak from their own heart and just say what they feel. But I feel like, especially in the space that you occupy, there's a lot of ways to offend a lot of people. Yes. So how how did you embrace that? You know, in the beginning, you know, I think a lot of it, I think, I think a lot about 2014 and 2014 and 15 and a lot of the sort of trans 101 conversations I was having in interviews. And a lot of it was about having, like, understanding, again, thinking this, I might be the first trans person coming into people's living rooms. And then some of the journalists, I remember I did um, CBS This Morning with Gail King and, um, oh, this story is so good. Um, and she said, she, she said I was born a boy and I was like, no, assigned male at birth. And just, you know, a little corre- language correction and a black trans woman that I knew wrote me on Facebook, this one I still got Facebook messages, um, wrote me on Facebook and said, work. She said, a lot of my white gay male friends are saying you're coming across as an angry black woman on television and you need to like, you know, Pull it back. And I, we can oh, do a whole show on that. Go ahead. Oh, yes. The girl. Like, that was so deep to me. I was like, they've sent this black trans woman to get me together. <laughs> Just saying, I was coming across. And mind you, the Gail white King found a black trans woman to <laughs> tell you to pull it back. Can I tell you, Gail King was amazing. It was my first time meeting Gail. Gail sent me an email after that interview and said, you were amazing. You came to play. You're incredible. So nice. these like people who think I was coming across as an angry black woman, Gail was living. Gail was like, I haven't, I don't have told the story publicly, but like Gail was amazing. And so I was just like, okay, what's going on here? And I think that, but I, how do we, how do we advance the conversation if we don't correct people? And I think it's, for me, it's about doing it with love. When Katie Couric said to me, she's like, you were so, I appreciate your tone. And I appreciate the way that you, corrected me and the way we've had this conversation i ran into her at the time 100 a few months later and she we had sat down in a corner and like had a real heart to heart and she was she appreciated so for me again it's about love so i'm not i'm not trying to sort of you know have a gotcha moment with i'm not disrespecting anyone sure. um, when i'm correcting people and i'm i'm coming from a space of love and trying to be um understanding and i think too that how, again how do you change the conversation if you don't um take risk and take chances but i kind of i have to say though i got to a point where i was like i just want to i just want to be an actress and go and promote my show and so i got to a point there there've been many interviews over the past few years where i don't talk about being trans at all yeah and, is and I want and I've seen interviews with other trans people where they don't talk about being trans at all. Yeah, and I love that and it makes me so happy. It's just, it, there's a lot to there's a lot to talk about in terms of injustice and and whatnot. But it's 
every trans person should be able to be out in the world in the way that feels most authentic to them. And every trans person is not an activist. It's not, you know, going to come sure. on and have an intersectional feminist conversation with, you sure. know. So, and we should be able to do that. What, um, what do you do when you sort of feel the heat from your own community? I think that's something a lot of us go through but don't talk about. I appreciate that. I, you know, I've cried. <laughs> I've cried. I had, um, I had a show on VH1 in 2010 called Transform Me. It was a makeover show. It was sort of a transgender queer eye. Um, and there were trans people who wrote horrible things about it, that it was reinforcing stereotypes about trans women. And it was really deeply painful to hear. And I think in a lot of ways they were probably right. And so I think that is the piece of like, how do you, I think that, I think for me, what you're asking is how do you, how do, how do I stay open to feedback and, um, and allow myself to remain teachable and accountable? And then also like, if something is not um, useful or helpful or just mean, assess it that way. And so, I mean, when it's my own community, I take it way more seriously. And I since I've said things that are not exactly the, the way I should say them and have been called out by my community. And um, in some cases I was wrong and I gone on the record and admitted I was wrong. Sometimes I was just misunderstood and I needed to clarify. Um, I think you, you just, hopefully if, if it's coming from a, from a, a good place, and if I'm wrong or if I've misstated something, I need to be accountable. I mean, I think that is like, that's the truth. If right. someone is just being mean or shady or whatever, I have to assess that as well with love and um, wish them the best. Um, it's really, really painful when it comes, it's most painful when it comes from your own community. But yes. then you have to always, con always consider the source, always. Mm. And also, and then you being accountable and like having taking moments to be, and I think being an introvert too helps this, that like I'll sit and contemplate. Like, I'm like, okay, girl, what are you wrong? <laughs> mm. You know, and like, oh, okay, yeah, I was. Um, and I need to admit it. Yeah, well, again, I, I wanna know how you do it. Cause somebody black tells me they hated something I made. I'm dead. I mean, I'm done for like a week. <laughs> for a week. So I mean, but do but you you snap out of it, right? Or you I, get to. And why did they hate it? I mean, I think that's like then then you ask the question like why are they hating it? Like yeah. that's hating something is such a, it's not that's not a critique. <laughs> it's not. Um, what specifically did they hate? And then like let's like explore that. And then like maybe they have some issue that has nothing to do with you or your work, right? Yeah. They have some trauma or something that like is not actually about you. So trying to um, get underneath who they are, and then and then sometimes you just need to let it go. Therapy is is my answer. Um, but I yeah, it, it's so it can be very confusing because um, I think what's so interesting about what we do. And, I, and especially you, and I, and I feel like actors really get this because when people come up to you in the street, they sometimes call you by your character name. You know, they're so identified with you as they see you. Mm -hmm. But we really are projection machines. You know, we create stories for people to project themselves into. We portray characters for people. And so, especially for people in entertainment, you don't really see the, peop the person, you, you see your projection onto that person. Yes. And I think sometimes for me, it can be very confusing. What is that person's projection? What of this should I take on? You know, I think a lot of us that are queer, people of color, 
um, you were also a woman, you were also trans, so you're in quadruple jeopardy, girl. But like, <laughs> you know, we, we, we are used to our inner critic pushing us and driving us. So we, we really take to criticism, like, oh yeah. And last week, can I tell you about that though? Last week, and I had an acting teacher, Brad, again, who like helped me, he gave me this exercise. Brad had gave me this exercise and he gives it to a lot of his students where he had me um, in an acting class where he was sort of an improv acting class where he would give me the the character was like to play the bitchiest drag queen from RuPaul's Drag Race and take all of the negative things that I say about myself and like read myself like that queen. So I would take all, all the mean stuff I was that I that, that those shame tapes those horrible things that I say about myself he had me just commit and oh. myself for filth in an acting class in front of people and I did this like every week once a week <laughs> for like four or five months and like the for, the first time I did it I and I he was like he's like cut and I broke down in tears because yeah. I was to have witnesses of how mean I was being to myself mm. which just was pretty devastating and a few in last just couple last week I think it was I was like I was not able to get in my resilience zone and I've been doing really well with my spirituality the past few weeks and I was like I realized there were negative thoughts and I sat down and I wrote them all down I was like oh shit I'm back here mm. I've internalized all the voices of the bullies and the critics and like I'm doing it to myself so um it's really important to, for, for me to be vigilant about that inner critic and those inner voices and like make externalizing them you got to get it out of the body and the great thing about that exercise as painful as it was is that yes. you get it out of your body and then he would have reality check and he was like well, you know he would ask people in the audience if they felt that way about themselves and invariably other people would feel the same way and they were like do you think this is true about laverne and they would say no and then it would wow that's really powerful deep girl it's deep <laughs> i should read myself <laughs> I got a lot you of probably already, You've already been reading yourself. I already read myself <laughs> every day I wake up in the morning. Consciously do it. Consciously do it. And Consciously do it. Give it voice. Yeah. So many things. With, that trauma, I, with trauma resilience and shame resilience, you've got to get it out of the body. You have right. to move out of the body. You've got to get it out. I think that's right. Um, otherwise, it'll be in there <laughs> forever. And, and yeah. Um, you, you mentioned something about staying in your resiliency and your spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. What is unpack that for us? What is that? I think we all have different things. I want to know Laverne's. So many things, Justin. Yes, it's give it. We have the water. I'm sorry. We have the water. <laughs> Step one. Hydrate. Drink so the right water. I um so I've been doing video chat therapy with my therapist every week since um, quarantine, mm -hmm. and um, she does somatic therapy. But her process is based on a, lot, a few things, including the community resiliency model. Mm. And community resiliency model is a is a or crim is a technique that was created for you know, for communities that you can learn it and then teach it to other people in your community. And it's a set of skills that are really easy to learn. It's based on six skills that are about resetting your nervous system and moving away from living in stress and trauma. Um, gesturing, shift and stay, resourcing, help now, um, grounding, and I'm forgetting the sixth one. I always forget the sixth one. Um, and it's And so I've been really committing to practicing these skills when mm -hmm. I feel myself. The idea of like a resilient zone and the community resilience model is like this middle spot. Like this resilient zone sort of in the middle. My therapist always says something like this. Yeah. And low zone. And low zone would be, you know, when we're depressed, when we're maybe even suicidal and we don't want to get out of bed. High yep. zone is when we're sort of bumped into stress or that survival that I was sort of talking about. And right. the idea is that we want to use skills and techniques to keep ourselves in a resilient zone and become aware. Tracking was the sixth one. Because um, tracking helps us become aware of what's going on in our nervous systems. And I 
we need to slow down. I'm really fast right now, but I need to slow myself down to like figure out what is going on with my body. It's always about the body. So, um, I would go into a therapy session and I would say I'm kind of anxious and my therapist would say, where in your body do you feel that most? And invariably it's my stomach, my gut. And she would ask me, where in your body is it neutral or positive? And then often it's my ankles. And so she would invite me to focus on that part of my body. And then we would talk a little bit and focus on the other part of my body. And invariably the anxiety would, um, the volume on the anxiety would get turned down a little bit by focusing on what is neutral and positive in in my body. It's always about the body. And that takes me to resourcing and that, you know, ideally you want to turn down the way I've been imagining it now is turn, it's, it's, a, it's a getting into a space of both and that the anxiety doesn't go away completely, maybe, or the trauma or whatever, but you want to turn the volume down on that and turn the volume up on the things that are neutral and positive in your life through your body. You have to sense it in your body. And um, it's been incredible. So I've been seriously doing a lot of resourcing, trying to turn the volume up. I've been doing a lot of uh, future template resourcing and manifestation stuff in um, quarantine and meditating. So are you le- are you leading a super soul Sunday that I need to be a part of? <laughs> I need to show up every week and be told things by you. I know that. <laughs> Can I tell you, Justin, I think that if you don't come out of this quarantine more spiritually evolved and enlightened or or have a problem, girl, I I know for me, that's not, I know for me, I want to come out of this more spiritually evolved and, 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 awakened and in a better space to like sort of take on the challenges of the world and to step more fully into the reason I'm here. Oh, I think this, this, this Corona situation is really an opportunity for us. Cause you were so in, I'm stripped from like human contact, but it's like, why am I here? Yeah. Why am I here on the planet? What is the, what is the, my, what is God's dream for me? And so really connecting to that and making sure that I have everything at my disposal to like to to be in alignment with that in the most authentic way and it's a process right it's going to be you know some days are going to be better than others i'm going to come out of quarantine i'm going to have some bad days i'm going to have some good days but it's really for me about living in that space of um of the best part of myself yeah that's great i know a lot of people are loving this advice in fact let's take some more audience questions brandon what you got Yes. Um, so again, because there's so many questions, I'm going to try to combine two. Um, but basically, uh, the question is, what are shows, what shows or movies right now are you watching that you feel like are changing the conversation? Um, what is bringing you joy regardless of what they're about? And also going off of that, what aspects of the trans narrative would you like to see on TV? So what are you seeing now and what would you like to see in the future? Great. Things that I've been watching in quarantine, um, Money Heist on Netflix. I watched all four seasons. <laughs> yeah, obsessed. Um, Mrs. America. I, I think I'm an episode behind. I think that maybe two episodes behind now. Loving Mrs. America. I finally watched um, the morning show too, and I thought that was just so well done. Oh my! What about God. trash? Do you watch any trash? Oh yeah. <laughs> what are you? What? <laughs> My you know, that's trash. where I want to go. <laughs> so my trash, well, like, Real Housewives of Atlanta is, well, there's two more reunions, probably. So Real Housewives of Atlanta is, like, Real Housewives of Atlanta and Wendy Williams are, like, my sort of, tra- and Vanderpump Rules. <gasps> yeah. Girl, Vanderpump Rules? I can't do it. I can't do Vander. Va- 
Because I know I would get into it if I started watching it, and I can't let that happen. It's a mess. It's so good. It's so, Vanderpump Rules is like, if anybody wants to like just have some trash to marathon, go back to the first season because I, I think I missed like the first two seasons and I like watched a marathon. Oh, God, I can't do it. I'm going to cry. Oh, go. I love Vanderpump Rules and then Real Housewives of Atlanta. There was some reading at the reunion. Okay. That reunion on Sunday. Did you see it? I did see it. One, all of the like Zoom versions of things I find a little depressing. I will say though, they they turned it out. They were like, I'm in my home. I can't get slapped. I'm saying what I want to say. And Portia doing the like lean in. Like, yeah. see, where are the receipts? Oh, but Kenya's reads. Kenya was giving, Kenya Moore came ready. They all came ready to read each other. <laughs> I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready for her read of Nene Leakes. I wasn't ready for it. And and Nina was Nene, actually. No, it was... Her laptop closed. I gooped and gagged. I really did. I was like, oh, sorry. <laughs> what, is your, um, what is your take on, on the drag race? Do you watch the drag race? I have been. I, you know, I've gone... It's so funny because I've gone back and forth where I didn't watch drag race for years. I'm watching the new season. Okay. Um, obsessed with Heidi... Right. Aphrodite, Heidi, in whatever her name Heidi is. Heidi Ho, Heidi in Closet. <laughs> All I'm of them. obsessed with her. Like, i just completely obsessed. And it's so interesting watching how they've cut cherry pie out of everything. Mm. Oh, cherry pie. Like, it's like, really interesting watching, like, when they show her and when they don't. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I've been really... It, it's What's really brilliant about... Um, RuPaul. <laughs> I think there's a lot of love. I've met RuPaul. I just I thought about the fracking. Sorry, I just thought about the fracking. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I love you, Ru. Though I'm watching your show, but I but but for me, there's there's certain people for me. Like and Wendy Williams is like this too. There are certain people who are girl, I can't believe I'm saying this in public form. Some people who are problematic, but like I live for them anyway. Like sure. I live for I live for RuPaul. RuPaul is a fucking legend. RuPaul has like opened doors and created a space that did not exist before. And I just want to give Ru props for that. And right. also understand that like everybody's not going to get, I you know Ru is on their spiritual, he is on his spiritual journey. He just won't let stuff in. Like he just, when I, what, I, what I respect and love about Ru is that Ru won't let anything negative in. Like mm -hmm. I think part of it is he refuses to let anything negative in. And so I, I, I live for RuPaul. I really do. And I don't, I, I've had issues with like some things RuPaul has said, but I fucking live for RuPaul and deeply respect. And that show is so entertaining. It's so brilliantly branded in like the way in which they brand themselves. And there's such a clarity around what their brands and Ru has been so very clear about his brand from the beginning. Yes. Um, it's like a training ground, that show. It's a training ground for anyone who really wants to be in entertainment and yeah. marketing and branding. I think you should probably watch RuPaul Drag Race because it well, really is a, a crash course in like branding, um, personal branding. Really well, I was telling my team, I'm totally a RuPaulogist. I, I never get that mad at Ru for very long. Um, so I get it. I, I've never been mad at Ru. This is the thing, I've never been mad at Ru. I've disagreed with some, some sure. sexism point of views, but I've never been mad at Ru. I live for Ru. I, live for Ru. I um, think what Ru is doing, which is so powerful, is is pointing out that everybody has different aspects of themselves, some of which that we have to keep 
that we don't even realize that we're keeping a lid on. Um, I love when I love when this, you know, they do the celebrity drag race when they bring these straight guys in and they put on a wig and they put on lashes for the first time and a whole new woman comes out that has never spoken before, but she has mannerisms and opinions. She has lashes and she's ready. She's fully formed. And she was in there. I, I mean, I, when Rue talks about using, um, a sort of using every color in the crayon box, I think there's something, RuPaul is freaking brilliant. I mean, I mean, Rue is really brilliant. We're all born naked and the rest is drag. I mean, there's just so many Rue-isms that are just really quite brilliant and great things to live by. And if you can't love yourself, how the hell are you gonna love somebody else? Can I get yes. a person in here? Well, and speaking so, of isms, yeah. you have one too. Hashtag trans is beautiful, yeah. which I didn't even realize that you started that hashtag. Oh yeah. It has over a million posts in it. It's a phenomenon in BD. What was that like for you? I hate asking, I hate always like saying, what was that like for you? But truly like, you know, I hashtag all kind of crazy shit that has not gone on to be a million hashtag thing. So five years, it's been five years. We started wow. um, Trans Beautiful five years ago. And it really came out of, I was doing, a, I was giving a lecture at some school, I don't remember the school. And I, and I said, we need to start a movement to celebrate all the things about trans people that make us uniquely and, and beautifully trans. I, I was like, talking about how in early, my early transition, I was, um, you know, um, I was often like, spooked, spooked, or read as a trans person on the street, clocked is a mm. term that we use. And it was devastating for me. And it took me years to really internalize it. If someone can look at me and tell that I'm trans because of my height, my voice, my, you know, my wide shoulders, whatever, that that's not unfortunate, that that's a beautiful thing because trans right. Every trans person is not going to fit like this normative um, ideals of beauty, and that's okay. And I, for years, I was I was I remember reading um, Bell Hooks's um, "Loving Blackness is Political Resistance" yes. um, chapter in Black Looks, and she talked about the Black is Beautiful movement and how. And I was like, we don't even have that as trans people. Wouldn't it be amazing if we had like mm. a national movement? This is like so. I read this probably like in, in the nineties, right? I read back Black Looks, and I was like, it'd be amazing if trans people had like a movement to like celebrate and empower ourselves and in our unique transness. So it came out of the Black is Beautiful movement and, and understanding what that was about um, and continues to be about. And so I just, uh, during a speech one day, I was like, we should just start a hashtag. It was just random. Let's just start hashtag trans is beautiful. I started doing it um, on all my posts. I encouraged the, I started encouraging audiences to do it. I had a photo shoot for Entertainment Weekly a few months later, and I, and, and I was dressed as the Statue of Liberty, and for the tablet of the Statue of Liberty, I had yes. trans people um, on the tablet, and it just kind of took off. And now over, you know, trans people all over the world are using it as a way to empower themselves, which is so awesome. And I really just, think the hashtag is not, it's not about me, it's about the community, you know? Yeah, but it, it's it's amazing because you saw something that was needed and, and boy, did you prove it. Um, you're just a goddess incarnate, it's fine. Um, okay, so let's ask, let's talk a little bit about what's coming up next for you. Um, uh, let's do that and then we're gonna play a little game called Don't At Me and I'm gonna send you on your way. And I'm gonna bother you later because we have work to do later. <laughs> yes, indeed, I love it. Um, but, but what's coming up next? What, are, what, what, um, what are the 15 premieres? <laughs> <laughs> will so, be coming to, to TV screens near the rest of us. So Disclosure, um, which looks at the history of trans representation. Yes, that looks great. Trans, um, trans cellular clouds or trans ethnic notions, if you will, um, will be coming 
soon somewhere. Okay. I can't okay. tell you, or we can't make the announcement yet, but look out the Disclo- Disclosure Doc Instagram page. Everyone go follow it. In the movie, I'm so proud of our movie. Um, Sam, our director, has worked so hard. And I'm total, um, everyone on screen interviewed is a trans person. Most of the crew was trans, um, all LGBTQ. And in the case when we couldn't find someone trans to fill a role, we had a fellowship program where we would train, a uh, cis person would train a trans person to do that job on the crew. Wow. So we're building. I wish that was my idea. It was Sam's idea, Sam, my director's idea. And so I want to, in other productions I do, I'm going to start to incorporate some of that, which is so awesome. Yeah. And proud of Disclosure. Um, Promising Young Woman is a film that I mean, I have no idea when that, it was supposed to premiere in April. I don't mm-hmm. know when it's coming out now. Your yeah. movie, <laughs> um, Bad oh. Hair, I don't know when that's coming out. Maybe you know. Um, know. And then I'm de- I've been developing stuff. It's been so great. I, well, I'm on um, Shonda Rhimes' Inventing Anna on Netflix. We were shooting that before this all started. You were shooting that during the lockdown? No, 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 not during lockdown, right before lockdown. Oh, that's what I meant. Yeah, like right as it was happening. As it was happening, and then we, and so the show's been shut down, so I'm going to go, that's my first order of business when we're back up and running. But it's been really fun. I'm developing a number of different um, TV projects, and film. I just attached myself to a film, and we just uh, we're, turned in a new draft so we're like there's a show that we're pitching there's another show we have a show peacock um with norman lear that's been announced so i can talk about it so yeah. that's development i have a show with norman lear in that's clean slate right yeah which is so crazy um <laughs> yeah there's like i'm just really excited about all the stories that i get to tell and like there was a question earlier about stories on tv trans stories on tv i'm hoping to tell them like that's why yeah. i'm developing these projects so hopefully coming to a tv screen near you soon I, I, I love it, and I love you. Um, okay, we're going to take one more break, and we're going to be back with our final segment. And we're back! Okay, so here's how... I did not steal this from any other TV show. I want to mm-hmm. start this way, okay? It is not anything like what Andy Cohen does on Watch What Happens Live. But this segment is called Don't At Me, where you can say don't at me to one of the three questions. Okay. And I'll be honest, the first one, you're gonna be fine. It's just a question that I didn't get to ask you yet, which is what would you say to your younger self, um, particularly, let's say, February of 2012? Uh, what would you say, or, or earlier, it's up to you, what, would you what, what do you most want her to know? I mean, I, you know, I get asked this versions of this all the time, and it shifts all the time because there's mm-hmm. certain things she needs to know. I mean, 2012, Laverne needed to know that um, the rent was going to get paid by November. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that you would get a, you would book a job and be directed by Jodie Foster and make enough in overtime because I was still in a day rate that you can pay your rent six months in advance. Yes. Hallelujah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love that as a rent, your rent will be paid. Your rent will be paid. I mean, girl, that's huge. That's, oh, that's very huge. Okay, what, um, okay, here's, a, here's, I think it's kind of fun. Who has recently been canceled that you think should officially be uncanceled? Is there anybody on your list? I don't, I'm not entirely sure who's been canceled. But like Tyra, what if, what's going on with people like oh. Tyra? Tyra Banks right now. I don't know. Brendan, what are the children saying? I'm old. They're bringing up old episodes of Top Model and they were and how problematic they were. And, and oh. 
And it's weird. We're applying 2020 standards to something from 2004, 2005. Yes. <laughs> Tyra Banks, it, leave Tyra alone. I mean, I just, I'm not, a, I'm not into canceling anybody, as I said. Yes, I'm not into not. canceling anyone. And I'm like, what is the dia- what does the dialogue look like? And like, and what is the, so that we can like evolve and grow and understand like that was a moment and this is a new moment and we can be critical, but like we don't need to cancel people. Right. Um, it's like how does and then I think like people, everyone's so scared too. Everyone is so scared right now of being canceled and saying the wrong thing that we can't even really get into dialogue. People give these horrible fake apologies or they say I'm sorry I offended you and then nothing really fundamentally changes so people don't actually know how to be accountable right. um, as everybody's just in fear cancel culture puts everybody in fear to actually say what they believe and then we can't actually evolve and grow yeah culture it's really sad well I'm gonna end it with a soft one too because you're such a pro at all of these what what's a classic role that in your heart of hearts you'd love to revive I mean, I've always wanted to play Lady Macbeth, and I will eventually. Well, there um, she is. <laughs> Lady Macbeth. Perfect. Macbeth. I love it. Yeah. Laverne, this went so quickly. Thank you so much. I love that I had no idea what we talk about, and here we are. <laughs> here we are. I knew you'd be fine, but um, thank you very much. I, I really enjoyed speaking with you. I know everybody watching got their lives. Um, this will be cut up into a podcast that will come out a little bit later this year. But, but thank you so much for coming on Don't At Me, Laverne. Thank you. I see you, Elle. I see you. <laughs> Is Elle in here? Yes. Thank it. you, Justin. You're amazing. I love you. I miss you. Um, I miss you, girl. Okay, special thank you to Jason Smith, our producer and CEO of Starburns Audio, Jessica Gutierrez, audio engineer, Judith Cargbo, production coordinator, Chris Bowers, theme song writer, Dominic German, additional music maker, Aliyah Jihad, Brendan Smith, producers for Culture Machine. I don't know why I'm talking like that, but those were the credits. Starburns Audio, a podcast network.